Uh, we had a, um, we've been going through a series through the book of Acts, and um, we left off, well, two weeks ago now in Acts chapter 5, and the church is growing, and they were also growing in the fear of the Lord. There were signs, and there were wonders, and miracles, and healings, and all these things are happening. And at the same time, how many of you know that how many, when great things are happening, sometimes other stuff can be happening at the same time that isn't so great? And so at the same time, the religious elite and the Sanhedrin aren't really that big of fans of what's going on. And uh, so they, uh, we're just in chapter 5. The disciples have already been arrested, imprisoned, ordered not to speak the name of Jesus. They have been flogged, which means they have been whipped and beaten and threatened and then released. And we, chapter 5 literally ends with them rejoicing after being beaten. They're rejoicing for being counted worthy for suffering for the name of Jesus. These, uh, these guys are, are just not normal. And then we get to Acts chapter 6, and it says this, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing... In other words, even though all this persecution is happening, even though they're, they're being arrested and persecuted and beaten and uh, flogged and all of these things, um, the church is still growing. Even though all this persecution, all these, you know, these threats and you can't speak in the name of Jesus, the church continues to grow. But even though it's growing, it doesn't mean that it's perfect. And so even in the midst of all these good things, there's this spirit of uh, disunity and complaining that's happening. Um, it's beginning to grow. And uh, the, the church, because what we find is it's kind of spiritual mathematics. When the church starts to multiply, Satan starts to divide. Um, and so um, if he's unable to silence us through fear, then he'll divide us through distraction. And so we see in verse one, it says, you know, the church is, is growing and it continues. It says the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so they're like, you know, there's this us-them thing going on. There's the, the Jew-Jews, and then there's the, you know, us, we're the, you know, con converts to Judaism. And so our, our widows are being overlooked and not being cared for, and this is a real deal. And so the church has already overcome, in just these first five chapters, persecution from without and corruption from within, but now they're facing this distraction of comparison because how many of you know that comparison is the thief of joy, right? When you start looking around and all of a sudden you realize like, okay, I think that this person's being treated better than me or not as good as me and they always and I never and I never and they always, then all of a sudden um, we, we start to feel like things are not right and nothing divides a church like, like comparison. And so they, they go at it in verse 2. They just nip it in the bud. They say, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together, and they said, It'd not be, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. And if you read this, you may be like, man, it sounds kind of like they're saying that they're diminishing feeding widows as though it's, we're beneath them. Like, we, we got we to gotta work on, like, preaching the Word of God. I can't be, you know, spending my time waiting on tables. But that's not what they're saying. It actually seems that the disciples were, were doing everything. They were, they were praying. They were preaching. They were studying. They were doing this as well as trying to figure out how they're going to do the daily distribution of food to those who do not have it. So they're trying to do all of that and do this. And so it's not that they're diminishing it and saying, well, this, this isn't needed. They're just simply getting so busy and the, the church is growing so large that they need to delegate some of these responsibilities. 
to focus on only what they have been called to do. This is kind of one of those age-old leadership principles. Maybe if you've read leadership books, I mean, they, this is, this is, we find this here in the early church that like you're called to do what only you can do and be able to delegate responsibilities of things that other people could do, right? It's a sign of a good leader. You kind of, okay, this is what only I can do. This is what God has called me to do. I'm going to find other people to be able to help me with the responsibilities that I don't necessarily have to do on my own. Um, and it's because Satan can take your attention off of your calling of God, then, then he'll distract you through the busyness of good. Doing all kinds of good things, we can get busy, so busy doing good things that, well, we can miss the God things that only he has called us to do. And this is kind of this thing even in, no matter what you do for a living or your occupation or your role, there are some things that only you're called to do, and you can't delegate that. Husbands, you're called to be the husband of your wife. You can't delegate that, right? You, you can't delegate moms. You, you're, you're to be a mother of your children. You, you can't delegate that. Those are roles and responsibilities that, uh, that have been placed on us that only we can do, and then there are other things that we can get other people to help us with. And so... Um, in this early church, they decide. They're like, okay, we're going to choose seven people. I don't know, because it's a holy number. I don't, I don't know why. They're just like seven people uh, to help us with this f- food distribution. Because we need to get got a bunch of widows. They, they can't provide for themselves. And so we need to be able to help provide for these people, whether they're Hellenistic or Hebraic. Like, it doesn't really matter. These people are hungry and they, and they need food. And so we need seven people to do this. And, and this would seem like a pretty administrative position. So if you've ever like hired people or, or run an organization, you, know, you look at the kind of job description, you think, okay, these are the things that I need. I need somebody, uh, I need to, they're going to help out with this food, and so I would need some probably with a strong back because they're going to be lugging things around, and I would need somebody that has some sort of organizational skills, maybe two years of Excel spreadsheet you know, skills. Maybe that's kind of what they're looking for. And, and what, what is interesting to me and blows me away is their job requirements for this position. We see it in verse 3. It says this, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this, this responsibility over to them. So, the two job requirements for waiting tables... The two job requirements for uh, distributing um, food for widows is that they are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Very odd things is if I'm thinking of, you know, putting someone into this position of trying to make sure that, um, that, they, that these widows get fed. And I think of these two things, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Um, some people, especially today, we think, okay, you know, you just need to be full of the Holy Spirit because that's really the only thing that we need to be focused on. We just need more of the Holy Spirit. And then other people on kind of the other side of the spectrum, and even the Christian realm, like, you know, we don't need to be worried about being full of the Holy Spirit. We need to worry about knowledge and wisdom and being in the Word, and, and that's all that's needed. We need, to, we need to have that. And I love that he combines these two, that, like, you need to be full of the Spirit and also full of wisdom as well. Because I think when these two things are together, well, you can wait tables in a revival, <laughs> um, which would hopefully be any of our dreams, changing the trash in a revival meeting, amen? 
He says this in Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get understanding. And I love the fact that he's like, you know what? Yes, you want to be full of the Holy Spirit, but you also want to be full of wisdom because wisdom will help you discern and obey the leading of the Spirit. We've seen people that kind of are full of the Spirit but have no wisdom, right? <laughs> and we've seen people that are full of, you know, knowledge and wisdom but have no Spirit. And those two things in of themselves are kind of like, whoo, okay, what do And then you've got somebody who's just like boring and has no life. And then you put those two things together and you've got somebody that's unstoppable and at the very least can serve tables in a revival meeting. It's kind of this low bar and also our greatest honor. And it blows my mind. So the first lesson we learn here, if you're taking notes, I've got like four points here, is that, that um, the first lesson we learn through this life of Stephen and these other men is that the core of Christian commitment is service. In other words, if you want to serve God, serve people. These, these, these men are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and they're thinking, just turn me loose. Put me in the, put me in the game, coach. And they're like, would you like to wait tables? Ah, that wasn't what I was thinking. But I was hoping for a little more like a better position or give me a better title at least than like server. But I think the beauty of it is that like these very first leaders that were chosen in the early church were chosen to serve tables and to wait on people. Because if we want to serve God, then we serve people. It's why we do things like for Bedford yesterday, you know, because if, you, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it should be evident by your servanthood. And uh, so they choose these seven men. One of these men is named Stephen. And you may have heard of Stephen. We're going to kind of talk about Stephen, the life of Stephen, what we can learn through this life and death of the very first martyr of the Christian church, um, Stephen. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you stand with me as we, we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through 15 together. We're going to kind of go through Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 because it encompasses all of his life and his death. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that, that, that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Lord God, I just thank you for this word. I pray that as we get into this life of this normal Christian with a very um, not grandiose job description, I pray that we would learn something about what it means to live a normal Christian life in this day and age as we live and as we die. In Jesus' name, amen.
So um, this, this guy named Stephen, he's given a job. He's got, he's got one job, right? His job is to serve widows food. So essentially, you can think of Stephen as like working in the very first cafe, the very first food pantry, right? It's his job. He's, he's got a lot of hungry people that need food, and he needs to make sure that that all happens. And I love verse 8 because it says this, now Stephen, he's got the job. It says, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. To which my very first response is, what in the world is he doing? Like, what's going on here? I thought Stephen had a very specific job. Then it didn't involve performing great signs and wonders among the people. It involved feeding hungry people. That's your job, Stephen. Stay in your lane, right? Like, I don't understand why you're doing all this extra stuff. You should be handling the food for hungry people. And I just, as I was reading through this week and praying through this, I just, I just, I, I know that someone in here needs to hear this. So I'm just going to say this. I, I believe it's a prophetic word for somebody, and it's this. Your job does not determine your gifting. God can and will use you in your gifting no matter what your occupation may be. And so if you're waiting for your job description to change before you start doing the work of ministry, you may be waiting a very long time. Let me give you an example. Last week we had some friends that spoke, and we know that they started a pizzeria in Central Asia. It's kind of an odd thing to do, uh, kind of an odd thing to start. But here's the, here's the reality, and this is what I want you to see. A pizzeria in the hands of a person full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom becomes holy ground and a strategic missions field. Do you see this? I mean, he's a pizza owner, right? Come on. He owns a pizzeria. And for you, you, you own a construction business. Okay. You, you're a plumber. You're, okay. You're a nurse. You're, you're a teacher. Okay. But do you understand that an occupation in the hands of a person full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom all of a sudden changes and God uses you in your gifting regardless of your occupation? Regardless of your job description, regardless of whatever it is that is in front of you, God has a plan to use you in your gifting and strategically in the place, in the arena of the world that you're working in, he's called you there. And he hasn't called you just to fulfill an occupation. He's called you to fulfill a calling within your occupation. Amen? So, so you may be like, well, you know, I just, I'd never felt a call to ministry. I, I just need you to understand. Um, Stephen was in charge of a food pantry, and yet he found God using him mightily, even though it was not in his job description. And he goes on, and it, this, guy, this guy's kind of, uh, I love him, because in verse 10 it says, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I need, you to, I need you to see this. I need you to see what it's not saying. Um, Stephen was just a normal guy. He was not a superhero. He was not known for anything special other than being a man full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We, we, we see this guy who literally, it says that his wisdom was not just something that came through his intellect or through schooling. It says that the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So the second lesson that we learn from this life of Stephen is that God does his greatest work through ordinary people. 
Sometimes we think, man, I, I just, I don't have the ability. I don't, I, I, I don't sing well. I don't speak well. I, don't, I, have, I have none of those things. And God says, actually, I can't wait to put my super on your natural in the place where I've placed you so that God, so that I can use you for my glory. I didn't ask you to be a superhero. I asked you to be submitted to my spirit and to walk in obedience and wisdom and just wait to see the amazing things that I want to do in the middle. Sometimes we think like, oh man, it's gonna, I just can't wait till I arrive. I can't wait till I get there. I can't wait till this is done, till I get to this place. I can't wait till I retire and then I'm gonna be able to be used by God. I can't wait till I get to this. And God's like, I actually wanna use you in the meantime, in the middle, like today, like right now, I'd love it. That's when I'm wanting to use you as just an ordinary person doing ordinary things. I'd like to put my super on your natural. And, and I love that his wisdom is given by the Spirit. Do you know that the, that the Holy Spirit wants to download wisdom into you just when you need it? Because you're like, well, I'm not that wise. You know, like I, I don't have all these years. Maybe you're a young person. You're like, I just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an older person that has been in the, in the Lord for all of these years. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit wants to download wisdom into you just when you need it? We see this, Mark chapter 13, these are the words of Jesus, verse 11. He says to the, he's talking to his disciples and prophesying ahead of time. He says, hey guys, whenever you're arrested, and they're like, what? I didn't know it was going down this road, right? Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we're like, well, you know what, I, I kind of I want to get to this place where, you know, I, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I'm at church or I'm in a, in a good place. But I just want you to understand that God wants to overtake you when you feel overwhelmed. So if you feel overwhelmed right now, if you've got a bunch of things in front of you and you feel like you're on trial and you feel like all of these things and these, all this, these things are going wrong, I just want you to understand this is a perfect opportunity for the Holy Spirit to overtake you when you're overwhelmed. This is the life of Stephen. This is the prophesying of Jesus to his disciples. Don't worry about what you're going to say because if you're dependent on me, I'll give you the wisdom that will confound the wise in the moment. And if you've ever been in those places where all of a sudden you, something comes out of your mouth and you're like, that wasn't me. Because it wasn't. Because you're not that smart. Right? Because you're not that wise. All of a sudden the word starts coming out of you. Why? Because it's in you. Because you've read your Bible. You're into the word. All of a sudden it just flows out of you when you're overwhelmed. In fact, I would argue, I would argue that the Holy Spirit does his best work when we're overwhelmed. Those of you who have been on the missions field and in tight situations when all of a sudden, you know, Pastor Jeff or somebody looks at you and says, hey, guess what? You're preaching today. You're like, um, excuse me, that's your job. Uh, my job description was to raise some money and go and help orphans over here. Uh, that was not in my job description. And he's well, this is what you're doing today. And all of a sudden you realize when you're on the edge of yourself, it's the beginning of God. All of a sudden you realize like God just starts using you. Like that wasn't me. And good thing, because we don't need more of you. We need more of God. And you get on the edge of yourself and God just, just uses you. I was talking to, um, I was talking to Alessandro. I was talking to some of the guys, told them about this this morning. On Tuesday morning, we were having coffee around my kitchen island, and uh, he gets a text message, and I can tell he's really concerned about it, and I'm like, what's going on? So he says, well, 
in Afghanistan, they're, they're changing laws. And one of the things that they're doing is they're updating their ID cards. And they used to just be pieces of paper that would have your name and some information and you could, you know, reserve plane tickets and things like that. And that was, but they're, they're upgrading to this new digital thing. And everyone needs to kind of resubmit their paperwork if you're a citizen. And the new thing that they're requiring is that you have to identify your religion on your ID card. Now, if you don't know about Afghanistan, Afghanistan isn't, doesn't take too kindly to Christians. In fact, you could be shot, you could be <laughs> persecuted at best, treated differently. Um, and it's written there in bold letters on your ID card. And he got a text from um, this young guy. I've got a picture in my phone right now because I, I was like, who, who is it that texted you? And it's a guy, man. He's got like a one-year-old and like a three-year-old, little girls and a wife. And he just wrote, we submitted our paperwork and we wrote down Christian. I do not know what this means for us. That just broke. Like, I was like, what in the world? And we were praying for him. And um, I'll tell you, one of the things, even in my heart, my heart was breaking because I'm like, what would I write? And I try to rationalize it away and just be like, you know, it's not worth this. I'm just going to, it's just an ID card. And as we were praying for him, like, here's, here's the reality, because I'm an American Christian. You know what I wanted to pray for? Safety. But you know what the early church prayed for? Boldness. Courage. And it was in this, this dissonance as I'm praying for a man who's got a small family that is writing down Christian willfully on an ID card, realizing that every, every soldier he places this before it could be the end of him. And I thought, when, when did it change for us? When was the end goal of being a Christian our own safety comfort? When was the end goal of a Christian to be blessed financially and be fat and happy so that we can retire in Boca Raton? When, was, when did that change for us? when we failed to start praying, stop praying for boldness and courage in the midst of fear. And so we read about stories like Stephen and uh, we read about stories about believers in Afghanistan and we, I ask the question, could I do that? I'll be honest. Could I do that? And here's what I think. Nope. I don't think Stephen could either. I don't think this brother in Afghanistan could unless, unless they were overtaken by the Holy Spirit as they found themselves overwhelmed. Unless they were so dependent on God and filled with Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom 
that in the midst of being overwhelmed, in the midst of great fear, great faith takes over. And you choose to do something that you know in and of yourself you would never want to do. Who does that? Nobody. Nobody but someone that is completely overtaken by the Holy Spirit. Not, not a superhero. It's a person that is completely committed to you. And the Apostle Paul writes, I'll tell you what he doesn't write. He doesn't say, um, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. It's not, he didn't write a self-help book. This is what he did write. You are more than conquerors through Christ who is in you. You're not more than conquerors because, well, doggone it, you know, you got a lot. You, anything you put your heart to, little, little bucker, you can do anything. You know? He says, no, you are more than conquerors through Christ who is in you. Don't ever forget that. And in verse 15, he writes this. It says, all, all who are sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that, the face of an angel. To which I'm like, I don't even know what that means. What does it even look like? All, all I think of is like this little chubby-faced cherub, you know, like... I don't think that's what it meant. I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't, I don't think they're like, oh, dude, you look like a little baby-faced cherub. Like, no, I don't think that that's what it was. Here's what I do think. I do think that his, his face did not reflect the anxiety and fear that the situation gave. I do think that it must have looked like it was in stark contrast to the red faces that were in that room. I, I do think that it must have been disarming to look at this man who is on trial, who refuses to lash out and to react and to give them the benefit of cowering to their intimidation. I think they're looking at him like, what is wrong with this dude? Does he not realize what we could do to him? And he's just like, just see Jesus in the middle of it. And then in chapter 7, he begins preaching. I'm not going to get into the sermon. You can read it on your own. It takes up the majority of chapter 7. It's, uh, it may have been his first sermon. It was most assuredly his last. You can, you can read it. It's essentially, he gives a, an amazingly succinct overview of the fathers of the faith. I mean, he just goes through the entire Old Testament in much short time than I would. So this third lesson that we learned from Stephen is this. You never know when you're going to need to know your Bible. Come on. Do you realize that? You, you never know when you're going to need to know your Bible. Well, you know when you don't know it, and you should have known it. But that's never the place to know it. The time to know your Bible is, well, now. Because when you're called upon and it needs to come out of you, if it's not in you, it can't come out of you. You never know. You never know when the, when the very thing that you're going to need. He didn't come up there with a sermon outline like, okay, everybody, I just I've got this prepared. If you don't mind, I'm going to be reading from. No, he just literally comes up there and they, they're asking him questions. And he has to give an answer when he least expects it. So I just want to encourage you, church, get into God's word. You may be like, well, I don't necessarily need it. You will need it. And when you don't have it and you do need it, you'll be standing 
not on solid ground, but on sand. So get into it. Get into the, allow the Holy Spirit to teach you because it can't come out of you it's not, if it's not in you. And leaders are readers. And these, obviously, as we look through this life of Stephen, one thing I do know he knew was his Bible because he rattled off amazing stuff. You can read it in Acts chapter 7. He tells the story of Abraham and um, of Isaac, and then he talks of Jacob, then he talks about Joseph, then he talks about Moses, then he talks about the Ark of the Covenant and how it traveled with God's people, and then it was finally put into the temple at about the time of King David and King Solomon. And then he says this in verse 48. This is what gets them angry. He says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. In other words, God is not confined to a box or a building. This is what has changed everything. This is why the Sanhedrin, this is, this is why the, the, the religious elite do not like these apostles and these disciples. Why? Because they are tearing down all of the control that they have. The descent of the Holy Spirit has changed everything. It used to be you need to go to God, come to the temple, pay your tithes, do all these things. And now all of a sudden everything has changed, become decentralized, and now it is God goes with you. The Holy Spirit resides in you and wants to work in you and through you. And so when you leave this building, God goes with you. When you go into your occupation, God goes with you. You don't need to come to him. He goes with you. And this completely messes things up. And he lays into, he lays into them in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. He says, you stiff-necked people. I, I don't really know what that means. I don't think it's good. I don't think they took it well either. It says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Again, don't know what that means. Doesn't sound that good. I don't think they took it well either. <laughs> you are just like your ancestors. All these people just laid out all of these ancestors. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And he says, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. In other words, Stephen's like, guys, look, you think that this battle you're fighting is against me and some of my friends, but it's actually with God. You are continually resisting the Holy Spirit. And Stephen gives us this opportunity to like repent. He just goes right at it. And let's look, at how they, look at how they respond. Verse 54 in the New King James, it says this. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed at him with their teeth. Again, I have, I have no idea what that even looks like. I have, I have, I have no, I'm literally, this is what it's, I have no clue. There's some things in here that are like, what does that even look like? You know, the cherub thing and then the gnashing of teeth. Like, this doesn't really make much sense um, because these are normally very dignified people in their robes and they are enraged and gnashing their teeth at him. And it's interesting because before they gnash their teeth at him and are angry, there is this phrase, cut to the heart. And it made me remember something in Acts chapter 2 after Peter preaches his, his first sermon. And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Isn't it interesting how the very same truth of the gospel can be preached? And one group is cut to the heart and responds with, brothers, what, what should we do? And another group is cut to the heart and respond with anger and gnashing of teeth. You can't think of a, of a more distant response to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's just like, um, it, it, I think the thing that I realize more than anything is that when you choose to harden your heart, truth doesn't soften it. It infuriates it. I mean, it really, when you're cut to the heart and you're hardened in heart, I'm telling you what, truth doesn't help it. It just infuriates you. But when you're cut to the heart and you are ready and receptive to truth, all of a sudden you come to a place of surrender of like, what do I have to do to receive this? What must I do? Because it's the power of the name of Jesus, isn't it? We've talked about this. Like The name of Jesus will either divide a room or unite a room. Rooms like this, we sing about Jesus, and you all are like, hallelujah. We go outside, we go down the street, we start singing the name of Jesus. I'm telling you what, it's going to divide. It's going to divide. Why? Because when you harden your heart, truth doesn't soften it. It actually infuriates it. And so we have this very different response. But make make no mistake, when you are confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand this. He leaves no room for you to kind of just be, I don't know, indifferent about him. He leaves no room for you to kind of like Jesus and not follow him. When you're confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, either it will draw you to him, or if you're hardened in heart, it will cause you to be infuriated, which is why you can go to um, your family gathering, you're coming up to your, your family gathering coming up here in July. I'm sure you're all going to get together. And if you say the name of Jesus, it will either divide your room or unite your room, depending on where people are at. You're going to talk about Jesus. and you do, Would you just shut up about your Jesus, please? And you're like, man, it just seems a little, just shut up about your Jesus. And you're like, wow, really? Because that's that wherever our hearts are. So they're gnashing their teeth at Stephen. And verse 55, it says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So as the Sanhedrin is being overtaken with great fury, in that moment, Stephen was overtaken by great faith. He is looking up to heaven. He is having an open vision in the middle of people ready to kill him and acting like animals. He sees Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read this in the message paraphrase. Paul writes this. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with things that are right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That is where the action is. See things from his perspective. I just want you to understand, like, this is exactly what Stephen is doing as he's around these people that are, are gnashing their teeth, hating on him. He sees Jesus in the midst of it. 
in the midst of this. And I love his response to them. They're all acting like animals. In verse 56, he says this, look. Because let me just help you understand. When you see Jesus, you're just not content with yourself seeing Jesus because you want other people to see him too. Even people that hate you, even people that would rather bury you in your backyard than say hi to you, you just can't help yourself but to have them see Jesus too. And he says, look. I, start, I mean, they're getting ready. They're picking up stones. They're ready to just kill him. He says, would you just, would you just look? Because it's so real to Stephen that it's more real than the reality that he is living within. He says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, what did they do? Did they say, oh, brothers, what shall we do? No, they literally covered their ears and ran at him, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. Again, I don't know what this looks like either. I'm seeing a bunch of grown men being like, ah, 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 like just literally just screaming, eyes closed, just rushing at this man. Like, this is so odd. It says they dragged, verse 58, it says they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I don't know about you, but like when we read the Bible kind of in our, our, our American context, I've often thought, man, Jews like to throw stones a lot. Have you ever thought that? I, I, I don't know. It's weird. I've never, we've never done that thing as, here like as, as Americans, but I read through the Bible and I'm like, man, it's like Paul got stoned, then this person gets stoned, they're being threatened to get stoned, and like they just love to throw stones. Like, man, my goodness, like this seems to be a thing for, for Jews and for Judaism, and this is like it's written in the, in the law and all this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. The longer I live, the more I realize that's just how people are. People like to throw stones don't they? And not, maybe not like actual stones and rocks. We love, we love accusations and, and names and judgments and curses on people that we disagree with or don't like. Why? Because throwing stones is essentially a great way to hurt somebody without needing to get close enough to feel their pain. I throw, I throw a stone from a distance. I'm not throwing a stone as I'm holding your hand and hugging you. No, I'm keeping you at bay so I can hurt you without having to see the tears. And I don't know what happened in this vision that he sees Jesus, but whatever, whatever he saw in this vision was enough to lead Stephen to do what he does next. And I need you to understand, like these stones are being hurled at him and he prays the craziest prayer. It is insane, this prayer. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I've only seen this in Jesus. It's almost like, 
like Stephen had an open vision of what his Savior suffered and prayed on the cross where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he's essentially, what we see Stephen doing is exactly what he saw his Savior doing. What would it look like if we did that? If what we saw Jesus doing in the moment of us being overwhelmed, that we would be overtaken by his spirit and do what we saw him doing and to say what we saw him, what we heard him saying and to act like we saw him acting in the midst of being completely unjustly persecuted, it would change the world. And we're about to see as we move forward, this death of Stephen changed the world. They launch out, not just in Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost from this point on. And then he says, when he said this, he fell asleep. Literally, they didn't take his life. The Lord took him. <laughs> he just fell asleep. Why don't you stand with me? This guy, I, I, I need to reiterate this to you, is not a superhero. Don't look at Stephen and think, man, this was a winner and I'm not him. This is a guy that has something I don't have. No, it's not true. I, I wish that we could explain it away. I wish that we could look at a guy and say, man, well, he's got something I'll never have. But the reality is, is he does have exactly what we have. The man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And the, the fourth lesson that we learn from Stephen is that it's not just how you start that matters, it's that you finish well. It's that you finish well. Death never makes a martyr. It simply reveals a martyr. I think about this when I'm talking about this, these, this family in Afghanistan. Death never makes a martyr. These people are living the life of a martyr, right? Because we never know which decision or which situation is going to define our lives. And many times, especially in this day and age, we just kick the decisions down the road thinking this one isn't going to matter. This one's going to be fine. Nobody's going to find out about this. Nobody's going to see this. This is behind closed doors. Nobody's going to see this. And we realize that our, in essence, our integrity and character have been eroded because decisions and situations don't really matter until they do. I pray that none of you come to the place where you have to die the death of a martyr, but I just want you to understand that we are all called to live the life of a martyr. The great theologian, William Wallace, from the movie Braveheart, <laughs> said this, all men die but not all men truly live. What if, what if we had a church full of Stevens, ordinary people filled with an extraordinary God? A man, what I love about him, a man who was content to wait tables in a revival, but also a man who refused to allow his occupation to define his gifting. 
a man who read his Bible so that it was need, when it was needed most, he had it and it came out of him. A man who, who finished well, a man who was faithful to the end, because that is what our God is. A man who just did what he saw his Savior doing, a man who said what he saw his Savior saying, a man who acted like he saw his Savior acting. I just want to encourage you to, as we, as we end in, in worship today, we're going to sing this song, and, and essentially, I pray that if you're overwhelmed right now, maybe you're going through a situation, maybe you've got this news, maybe you don't know what you're going to do, and you've got a huge decision in front of you, I just want to encourage you, this is a perfect recipe to be overtaken by the Spirit of God. That God wants to meet you in the point that, which, that you're overwhelmed. And, and I pray that as we sing, I pray that the heavens open. I pray that God speaks. I pray that you see what your Savior is saying and doing. I pray that you have the, not just safety, because our end goal is not comfort and happiness. Our end goal is boldness and courage. So Lord, I pray that you would fill each person with your Holy Spirit to the point of overflowing. Not just so that we're happy, so that we can look to others and say, would you just look and see my Savior in the midst of a situation that seems hopeless? Lord, I thank you that you are more than enough. And as we lift your name up above our name, God, I pray you'd have your way in this place in our lives. I pray that we would see you in the midst of this situation. I pray that we would, we would feel you in the moment where we are overwhelmed the most. And that people would look intently at us and say, there is something up with you. You're not right. You're full. Lord, we thank you. We lift you up. We lift you up in this place. We lift up and we, we place all of those, those issues and those things at your feet, realizing you're in charge of them to begin with and you're in charge of them and you're faithful to the end. Lord, help us to be faithful to the end, to end well not just in how we die, but how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.